or maybe an electronic version if, if you prefer that. But this morning, we're going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you want to just turn there with me. And just by way of introduction, one of the biggest movies of 2023 was the story of Jewish scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb. It was number five movie of the year, big grossing movie. And although it's a, it's a, a pretty accurate portrayal, I'm certainly not endorsing the movie. It's riddled with Hollywood's indecencies throughout. But I'm using it as a point of reference because the movie brought back into the American consciousness the story of Oppenheimer. And one of the things upon the successful detonation of the test bomb at the Trinity site in New Mexico, he thought or uttered these words, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Pretty famous quote. It's actually not original. Um, he got it from a, um, a Hindu religious text. But those are, that's, it's, a tribute, it's accredited to him. And so right after the deployment of the atomic bomb in the war in 1945, Albert Einstein and J. Robert Oppenheimer got together with the scientists at the University of Chicago who helped develop the first atomic bomb. And they formed a nonprofit group called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And then two years later, this group created what is known as the Doomsday Clock. And the idea was to convey just how close they believe the world is to the end based on global threats. So midnight on the clock represents the apocalypse, the complete and final destruction of the world. And their stated purpose for this clock was, quote, to preserve civilization by scaring men into rationality. And this probably serves as a good reminder of the, of the dangers that are around us, it continues to be updated in January of every year. Now, back in 1947, when it first came out, it was set to seven minutes before midnight. Since then, it's been set backwards eight times and forwards 17 times. Now, in 1953, with the detonation of the first hydrogen bomb, a thermonuclear device, they set it forward to just two minutes before midnight. The furthest it's ever been from midnight was 17 minutes in 1991. Now that was when George H.W. Bush, the senior, was president. He probably thought, prodigious, <laughs> record setting. <laughs> it's up there. It's good. Bush good, others bad. Yeah, I love Bush, <laughs> but national security, good, <laughs> very prudent. <laughs> so whatever he did, it was at 17 minutes before midnight. Yeah, don't encourage me. <laughs> Deborah has to live with me. So if we can have a little fun, though, can't we? There's joy in the Lord. Amen. Amen. So... It's been advancing mostly forward since 1991. So here's some milestones. In 2017, it was again, well, it was set to 2 minutes and 30 seconds. And then forward to 2 minutes in January 2018. 
January 2020, one minute and 40 seconds from destruction. Just this past year, January 2023, it was moved closer than ever. It's just one minute and 30 seconds before midnight, in part because of the Russians' threat to use nuclear weapons in the war in Ukraine. It's remained unchanged last month, but that was before we went this week and launched airstrikes against the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, that's, that's a kind of a tinderbox and a really challenging situation. So we have this doomsday clock. Now last week we began with the encouraging words that you were all going to die, and me too, that was apostolic encouragement. This week, the good news just keeps on coming. And it's this, Armageddon is real, and the world is coming to an end. Be encouraged. This is the good news. Well, we're going to be looking this morning at First and Second Thessalonians, two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, Thessalonica. And this was a baby church, a newborn church. And we're in the sixth week in this series now, and we're just about halfway through. And the message title this morning will be, In Light of His Return. And our little parchment has two parts to the outline this morning. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, and we're going to look at the reality of his return in the first five verses. And then we'll look at the readiness of his people in verses 6 through 11. Now, we're going to spend most of our time in the first five verses. In fact, in the first three verses. And I think the reason for that will become apparent as we go. But let's just start by reading through the text. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. It says, Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the light or to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing." So this is God's word. We want to dive into it and try to understand it and apply it. And I want to start by looking at the reality of his return in the first five verses. And this passage, you probably notice, is all about the day of the Lord. It's a phrase that's used at least 19 times in the Old Testament and five times in the New Testament, two of them are in these letters to the Thessalonians. 
And it refers to events surrounding the return of the Lord. It's his second coming. And the Bible has a whole lot to say about it. Let me just give you some stats. There are 1,845 different references to the Lord's second coming. At least 17 books in the Old Testament refer to it. And 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament refer to it. Seven out of ten chapters in the New Testament references return. And in fact, there's eight times more written about his second coming than his first. The Bible has a lot to say about the return of the Lord. So it's obviously an important topic. And verse 1 begins by saying, Now brothers, about the times and dates we do not need to write to you. Why not? There is no point. Jesus said in Matthew 24, no one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And after his resurrection in Acts 1-7, he said, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority. So Paul doesn't even know when the Lord will come back. Now, I met someone one time who said, I may not know the day, but I know the hour. And it got my attention. I said, oh, when? He goes, between 3 and 4 o'clock. And I said, well, how can you say that? And he goes, well, it'll be 3 or 4 o'clock somewhere in the world. (laughs) And obviously, it will. But we're not to obsess over the exact time of his return. Many people made fools of themselves and just brought all kinds of criticism on the church by setting dates. And whenever somebody sets a date, you can pretty much guarantee that's not going to be the day of his return because he said, no man knows. Yet, Jesus does exhort us to be aware of the signs that the time is drawing near. In Matthew 24, he gives us a list of these signs. And so I've listed them here. They include spiritual deception first of all in verse 5 wars and rumors of wars in verse 6 famines and earthquakes in various places in verse 7 persecution in verse 9 it says many will be turning away from the faith in verse 10 there's false prophets in verse 11 there's an increase in wickedness in verse 12 And the gospel will be preached worldwide. Verse 14. These are signs that the day of the Lord is drawing near. And we see these things happening all around us. Pretty much all these pictures came out of the news. Like in the last few weeks. These aren't archives. They're they're happening right now. And we're supposed to pay attention to these signs. Even though we won't know the exact day or time of his return. The day of the Lord is not going to be a happy day on earth at all. Let me just look at one Old Testament passage with you. You can turn there if you like. It's Isaiah 13, but I'll I'll read it to you. You might not get there in time, but listen to Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 6. It says, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. 
Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. And they will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wickedness for their, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Yikes. You, you hear some of the adjectives used to describe this day? Destruction, terror, pain, anguish. It won't be a fun time. So what's the purpose of it? It says it very clearly in the text. To make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. To punish the world for its evil. The wicked for their sins. This is the Lord's righteous divine judgment on evil. I hear unbelievers say things like, Well, if God is really all good and if he's really all powerful then he would put an end to evil. But he hasn't, so there is no such God. Well, guess what? God is going to put an end to evil, and the only reason he hasn't yet is because of people who think like that. You see, God wants to give them time. He's patient. The Bible says he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Yet, there's a tipping point. God will only tolerate the sinfulness of mankind so far, so long. He tolerates it for a little while so that mankind will come to repentance. But there will be a time of judgment. But listen to the words of Ezekiel 18.32. This is God speaking. He says, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Repent and live. It's right there. It's a warning. And a solution, an opportunity, repent and live. So verse 2 in our text says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Now notice two elements of this day of the Lord here in our text. The first is an element of surprise. It'll come like a thief in the night. Well, people are saying, well, that's the first one. And then the second one is an element of supposed safety. Well, people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. So we have surprise and supposed safety. Now, to be honest, this is confusing. Because many passages speak of these incredible signs that will happen leading up to the day of the Lord. But here it says... It'll be a surprise. There'll be peace and supposed safety on the earth. Listen to what Joel 2.31 says. It says, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And this same thing is quoted in the New Testament. Peter repeats it in Acts chapter 2 verse 20. 
He quotes Joel. He says, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, no doubt there'll be some people running around blaming it on carbon emissions, <laughs> but, but that's not what it's going to be. It's the Lord's divine judgment. Listen to Revelation 6, 12 and 13. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. That's Revelation 6. And the return of the Lord doesn't happen until the end of Revelation 19. There's 13 chapters of in-between in there, which is all of these cataclysmic events, this judgment. So how could anyone with half a brain not see this coming? How is that possible? How could anyone be surprised by the day of the Lord? Now this thought really bothered me this week because in all my years of studying the Bible, I've never really noticed this contrast, this dichotomy, that it's both these cataclysmic signs leading up to it, and then there's this surprise element, and everybody's doing just fine, and then it happens. How can those possibly go together? Well, I'm never just content to go to some commentators and see what they say. I'm, I'm not discounting or devaluing them. I think they can be helpful. I think their wisdom is good, but I'd rather go to the source. And so this, this week, I dug into every single passage that references the day of the Lord to see what, what is it talking about? How does this fit together? Well, here's what I found. Many passages speak of the cataclysmic events leading up to the day of the Lord, as we read a few, and others, like verses 2 and 3 in our text, speak of it happening by complete surprise when everything is calm and peaceful. But here's the most astounding part. In three of the Gospels, Jesus speaks of both in the very same passage. He speaks of the cataclysmic events, and then he talks about the surprise element and the peace and the safety, as though they're not in conflict. Well, keep a finger here in First Thessalonians and turn with me to Matthew 24. I just want to look at one of these together with you. We already read part of Matthew 24, but I want you to see the rest of it. I want you to see what kept me up late all week, <laughs> wrestling with this. Starting in verse 3, it says in Matthew 24, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Yeah, tell us. This is what we're asking. And they ask our question for us. It's exactly what we want to know. In verse 4, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. And then he gives this list of signs that we already talked about. Rumors of wars and wars and nations rising up against nations, famines, earthquakes. And he says all of these are the beginning of birth pains. And then skip down to verse 15. He speaks about the abomination that causes desolation as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And in verse 21... For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Verse 29, 
Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Sound familiar? That's Revelation 6. And Jesus is quoting this here to the disciples. So there'll be all of these cataclysmic events leading up to the return of the Lord. But now look down at verse 30. At that time, the son of the the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. How's that for a sign? Jesus coming on the clouds with great glory. We talked about great glory last week in his harvest crusade. Oh, wait, it's great glory. I'm sorry. I get those confused. But guess what? Great glory will be coming with him in great glory. And so will every believer when Christ comes back to the earth. We talked a bit about that last week. So will you be one of them? Now in these verses, here's these cataclysmic events again. And then the Lord coming with great glory. But now look down at verse 36. Here's where it gets really interesting. He continues. No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with the hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. How interesting. He says, it'll be just like the day, the time of Noah, where people were eating and drinking and marrying and partying and ridiculing Noah for building this stupid boat. And they had no idea. Everything was just hunky-dory. And then it comes on them suddenly. So doesn't that seem contradictory to what we just read about the cataclysmic events? How can those two both be true? I don't know. <laughs> it's above my pay grade. Well, actually, this is what kept me up all week. It made for a long week of message prep. But here's what I found. First of all, you will, by the way, find the same dichotomy, not only in Matthew 24, but in Mark 13 and Luke 21. It's not a typo. It's clear um, that this is what it will be like. So, Here's the thing we need to realize. Developing a complete picture of the end times is a little like fitting puzzle pieces together. Only you don't have all the pieces. Some of the pieces obviously go together because they match right up. But then there's others that you can't tell for sure. This can lead to disagreement over the end times. And there is a lot of disagreement over eschatology, the study of end and things in the church. Some say, well, this fits over here. And another person will go, no, it doesn't. It fits over there with this. And they piece it together differently. We don't have all the pieces. But again, God, he hasn't told us everything about the end times. But he has told us everything that we need to know. And he said in chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, we read, we do not want you to be ignorant about these things, talking about the end times. And so we're called to do our best to understand it, even though it can be difficult to fit it all together. So here's what I think is going on. 
in these passages. The day of the Lord is not a single day. It's not a 24-hour day, but a period of time. Much like scripture speaks of the day of grace that we're in right now. It's a time when God will dramatically and radically intervene in human history. This is kind of the time of man. Then it's going to be the day of the Lord. When God begins a very radical intervention. And here's what I believe. I think it likely begins with the rapture and ends with the final judgment. And there's a lot that happens in between. So not a day, but a period of time referred to as the day of the Lord. So I want to lay out four of the primary end times events. And I'll put them in a timeline format. I'm going to put them in the order that we understand them to be. Others might disagree, but this is from the perspective that we teach at Riverside. I think it's a very faithful representation of what scripture says, and I'll do my best to kind of point out why we might see it being that way. But we'll, we'll just start with these four basic elements, and, and I'll try to map I hope this doesn't get too academic, but again, we're to try to understand these things and not be ignorant of them. So, first of all, we're right now in the church age. Okay, it began at Pentecost when after the resurrection and, and God sent the Holy Spirit. That was the beginning of the church age, and it'll continue until the church is removed. And so the first major event of the end times is going to be the resurrection of the dead and the rapture. It's God gathering his church. He comes back for his church. It's the removal of the Christians who are alive on the earth at the time. And it comes right after the resurrection of Christians who are dead in Christ. We talked about that last week. It says together we'll meet up with the Lord in the air. And all of us who believe will be there amongst them. Now, that sounds almost too fanciful to imagine, doesn't it? But it's no more incredible than the incarnation. God coming down and becoming man, a virgin birth. Jesus doing miracles, raising the dead. The resurrection of himself. It's no more incredible than any of that. And so this is what God tells us is going to happen. So these events, I believe kick off with the, tribula- with, the, with the rapture. And then next is the tribulation. And it's a period of seven years. It's spelled out many different places in many different ways in scripture. It's very clear. And this is the, t- the time of God's wrath upon an evil, unbelieving world. And in the middle of the tribulation is what's called the abomination, the abomination of desolation. And that's in in Daniel, and we read about it in the New Testament as well. Jesus mentioned it. And this sets in motion what's called the Great Tribulation. Three and a half years in, it ramps way up. And it's a time of great distress like the, the earth has never seen, Jesus said. So this then sets the stage for the return of Christ. When he defeats his enemies... And the wicked are purged from the earth. The king comes back down. And immediately after that, he establishes the millennial kingdom. It's the thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth. And he'll reign from Jerusalem. This is the ultimate answer to the prayer we've been praying 
and the church has been praying for a few thousand years. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God will come down. Christ will come down and establish his kingdom. Satan will be bound. It'll be a time of peace and comfort and joy and obedience and holiness and truth. And I can't wait. I can't wait to see the world under God's government, his governing authority. Only believers will enter the millennial kingdom. Those would be the ones who come to faith during the tribulation, both Jew and Gentile alike. Unbelievers will have already been judged. And prior to the tribulation, the church will have already been taken away. But then there will be many other people born during this thousand years, some of which will believe and others will rebel. And so at the end of the millennium is one final judgment of those born during the end times. And it's here that God will resurrect. It'll be the second resurrection where he resurrects the unbelievers. And it's a resurrection to final and eternal judgment. And then after this, the present earth in this state is destroyed and God brings down a new heaven and a new earth and then begins the eternal state where God will dwell with his people forever. You'll find that in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. So this is the sequence, as best as I understand them. I think it's a faithful representation of what scripture says and it's a perspective from which we teach here. Now, I'm going to leave this diagram up for a bit because I next want to look at the timing of these things and see how verses 1 and 2 of our text, and really all, a lot of verses in First and Second Thessalonians, I want to see how it fits in and how it helps explain what's happening here. So, as I said, I believe the day of the Lord starts with the rapture, and it ends with the final judgment. So it spans much of what I've well, everything here and from the green rapture over to the second resurrection and final judgment. Now, because the rapture is before the tribulation, it would explain why this day, the rapture of the church, will be a surprise. If the rapture occurred in the middle or the end of the tribulation, like some believe, it wouldn't be a time of surprise to anybody. And it certainly wouldn't be a time of peace but I believe it's the first initiating event of the end times. When the rapture occurs, the church will be removed and the Holy Spirit with it. And then there will be real lawlessness. We think it's bad now. Where do you take the church and the spirit out of the picture? 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. We saw last week, I believe that that that's holding it back is the Holy Spirit embodied in the church. Remember what Jesus said to his followers? You are the salt of the earth. And back then, salt was the primary way that they kept meat from spoiling. They rubbed the salt into it and it would preserve the meat. Well, when God removes his church and removes his spirit, there's nothing holding back the lawlessness. And it's going to go downhill in a hurry. The tribulation is what ensues. And this would explain why verse 3 of our text says, well, people are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly. Listen to this. As labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. 
It also explains why Jesus said it'll be like the before the flood of Noah when people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. It catches them by surprise. And Jesus also said that this destruction would be like labor pains on a pregnant woman. He said the wars and earthquakes are the beginning of birth pains. It's an interesting analogy. Because the thing about birth pains, you know they're going to happen. You know it's soon. You can see the stomach. This is going to happen pretty soon. But you don't know exactly when it will start. But once it does, it increases steadily in both frequency and intensity. They get stronger. They get closer together, the labor pains. And that's what the Bible says will happen with the judgment, the destruction that comes upon the earth. Revelation chapters 6 through 19 spell this out very clearly. Judgment upon judgment, increasing in intensity. So the tribulation is like the birth pains, but what is it that's being born? It's the kingdom of God upon the earth. That's what's being born. Now, if you'd like a copy of this, maybe we can get Dan to include it in a PDF in the Encore guide this week. Many of you get that. If you don't, shoot a note to the office or to Dan. It's our follow-up application study guide. It takes the things we we're studying here and it asks deeper questions and allows us to really think it over and apply it and live it out. So I hope this is helpful. This is kind of the landscape. And I want to go back to our text now in verse 4. It says, but you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Now verse 2 said, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the what? The night. And verse 3 said it will bring destruction. And verse 4 says that this will not surprise us who are believers. Why not? Because we're not in the darkness. In other words, we won't be there when it happens. It's a thief in the night. We're not in the darkness. We're delivered from the time of wrath. And this is the encouragement that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians who were facing persecution. Praise God, we won't be there for it. But now all of this raises a big question. And it's the question we should all have every time we study the Bible. Here it is. So what? So what? So what? That all of this is going to happen. So what does this mean for us, for me? See, the whole reason God tells us about these future events is so that we can take action now in the present. If you hear a forecast that a large damaging storm is coming, what are you going to do? Nothing? No. You're going you're to take action like right now. There's a storm coming in. I'm going to board up my house. I'm going to store up some food. I'm going to hunker down in the basement. I'm going to make sure my family and friends are safe. You take action right away. 
Well, that's God's primary purpose here as well. And we don't want to lose sight of that. He tells us what's happening in the future so we can take action right now. So what? So what? What do we do? That's what Paul covers next. So we want to look at the readiness of his people. Verse 6 says, so then. I like that. He's going to answer our question. So then. Let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Now, in these verses, sleep is not a metaphor for death, like we saw in chapter 4. Here, it's a metaphor for being unalert, unengaged, uncontrolled, and unprepared. That's what it's talking about here. If we let down our guard, just because we're under God's grace, then we're going to become unproductive and unfruitful in our Christian faith. We'd be sleeping. And there's a great danger of us falling asleep. The church in America right now today, because we live in a time of freedom and prosperity. And there, I think, the danger of our falling asleep is even greater. William Burns, he was a 19th century... Oh, look, I'm one behind. William Burns was a a 19th century Scottish missionary and an evangelist to China. And he said this, A Christian is not likely to fall asleep in a fire or in deep waters. He's likely to go drowsy in the sunshine. Amen. Oh, I love a, a, on a spring day, warm sunshine in a lounge chair on the back deck. I can take a nap. I love it. We're in a period of blessing and prosperity. And you know what? If we're not careful, it can lull us to sleep. We can let our salvation become a moral hazard, like we talked about before, where we have contempt for God's righteousness. So in light of God's return, we need to ask ourselves, am I getting a little sleepy, a little lazy in this day of grace? Or am I earnestly working and earnestly waiting for the return of the Lord? Am I living like Jesus could come back at any moment? Or am I slacking and sleeping? It's a question we all need to examine. Verse 8 says, But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. This is military gear. A person only puts on military gear if they're going into a battle, right? Guess what? We're in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle. And we have to protect our heart and mind from the ungodly philosophies and temptations of the world around us that would lure us into unproductive and ungodly lives. There's a lot of it out there. What do we need to protect ourselves? Faith. Faith is essential to protect against temptation. We have to believe the word of God. We have to believe what he says is true. We need faith, and then love is the exercise of our faith. So these are like a a breastplate and a helmet to protect us. Now, here's the thing I think we could easily miss. The Thessalonians didn't need 
a harsh word of admonishment. Paul didn't have to come down on them. Timothy had already brought back word of their strong faith and love. He said it's a model to all the believers in the region. You guys are doing well. So he's just encouraging them here. But would the same be true of us here in America? Would we get the same kind of letter? Or would it be more like the letter to the Corinthians? Or the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in the first three chapters of Revelation? What would our letter look like? What would the letter to Riverside look like? What would a personal letter to us look like? Would there be admonishment? Are there things that we need to do? Are we sleeping? Well, Again, a good opportunity for us to examine ourselves in the light of his return. He is returning. It could, as Dan said at the welcome, it could be today. I, I wish he would have come back before I had to <laughs> try to sort out all this end time stuff. But the Lord will return. Hey, did anybody growing up ever have their mother say, your father's going to be home shortly? How did you respond to that? Were you like... <gasps> or you're like, woo. <laughs> it depends, right? It depends on what you had been doing. If you're doing the things that please the Father, you'd be like, yeah, Dad's going to come home. I'm going to show him how I cleaned my room. I'm going to show him all the stuff I did. But if what you've been doing is not pleasing to the Father, <gasps> sheer terror. The same way. The Lord is going to return. How do we respond to that? What will, what will it be like when we see him? Will he find us sleeping? Well, verse 9 says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. <sighs> this is heavy stuff. Here's a breather. He didn't appoint us to wrath. We talked about this verse last week. Wrath is not your garden variety persecution. Wrath is God's righteous vengeance in response to evil. And the tribulation is the time of God's wrath. This comes from God Almighty. This is his vengeance, his fierce anger. And it's totally righteous. But believers are not appointed to suffer wrath. Why not? Because God took out the wrath upon himself, upon his son, upon the cross for us. So we don't have to endure that wrath. Listen to John 3.36. It says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Are you under God's wrath? You could be sitting here today under God's wrath. And it'll be revealed. And it'll happen suddenly and increasingly. Or are you delivered from that wrath? Have you been saved from that wrath? Now, I heard a disturbing interview this past week. And it involved a man that I generally respect. He's the author of books like Bonhoeffer and more recently Letter to the American Church. It's Eric Metaxas. I like a lot of what Eric Metaxas says. Deborah and I got a chance to meet him um, a couple months ago. 
But what was disturbing to me is that Metaxas recently declared, just within the last couple of weeks, that pre-tribulation rapture is bad end time theology. He called it rescue rapture theology. And he said it causes people to sit on the sidelines and not care that America is going down the tubes because they're going to get rescued out here. In fact, he said, they even when it, when it gets bad, they're like happy because they're like, yeah, yeah, our rescue's coming. And so he said they don't get involved in things like the American political process. So he declared, this is a quote, it's bad theology. Bad theology, to be clear, is from the pit of hell. It's Satan's theology. It's not like B-minus theology. It's from the pit of hell theology. And it leads us to not doing God's will. That's what Metaxas said. This kind of broke my heart. Because most of the evangelical Christian church believes in a pre-tribulation rapture. He just kind of declared them all heretics. Well, first of all, I don't believe it's an accurate portrayal of most evangelical Christians who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture view. Many care deeply about the social, moral, and political woes of our country, and they work very hard to shine God's light into those areas. Praise God. But secondly, even if it was true that it caused Christians to sit on the sidelines, we must never dismiss biblical revelation based on our social observation. If we're going to form our theology around what Christians do and don't do, we're going to be a hopeless heretic. Because even Christians are broken people. And so verse 9 and many others affirm that believers will be delivered from the time of wrath. Back in chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it says how we are to serve the living and true God and wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That's the word of God. Rescue, rapture, theology, as he called it, is solidly biblical. I think what Metaxas is reacting to is the fact that many believers have become sleepy. Just like this passage warns us about. They're too complacent in their state of comfort and prosperity and grace. And so they do withdraw. They do sit on the sidelines. They're sleeping. But that doesn't make the theology wrong. It makes the practice wrong. It's not a problem of orthodoxy. It's a problem of orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right teaching. Orthopraxy is right, correct practice of that teaching. It's a problem with orthopraxy. So we're going to see more the next time as we get into the rest of chapter 5 about what God calls us to do as a church in light of his certain return. So verse 10. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. So now this switches back to the use of wake and sleep like in chapter 4, meaning a metaphor for dead or alive in Christ. He died and rose from the dead so that we may live together with him, whether we die before he comes or we're alive on the earth when he comes. And then it says this, verse 11, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now notice in that verse, the primary encouragement 
isn't meant to come from the Apostle Paul. It's not. He's teaching them what the Lord says, but he's not the primary encourager. The primary encouragement is meant to come from one another in the church. Encourage one another and build each other up. He said the same thing at the end of chapter 4. Encourage each other with these words. Do you feel discouraged this morning as you look around at what's going on in the world? If so, if that's really discouraging, I'd ask, how are you spending your time? Who are you hanging around with? Hebrews uh, 10.25 says this, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. This has become quite a thing in a post-COVID America. A lot of the church has gone into isolation. Now we had to for a few weeks or depending on your view, a few months there during COVID, but some people got really comfortable on their couch in isolation, apart from the body. Live streaming is convenient. Podcasts are convenient, but it's no replacement for being together and worshiping together with the manifold presence of God in the local church. He says, let us not give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing, but listen to this. Let us encourage one another, one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. What's the day? The day of the Lord. It begins with the rapture. It goes through the tribulation, the millennium. It ends with the final judgment. Do you see it approaching? I see it all around us. Again, those pictures were from the news like this past week. So this is the job of the church, to get together and encourage one another with the truth that we're living in the light of Christ's return, reminding each other that the call of the call that God has on our lives to be alert, engaged, self-controlled, waiting, ready, prepared for his return. I was just super encouraged yesterday morning to see 29 men come out for the Recalibrate Men's Bible Study at 7 a.m. We had eight tables. There was room for 24. We had to add a ninth, and then we had to add a tenth. Praise the Lord. Because when we gather like this, when we meet together, and we discuss the word, and we apply it, we're encouraging one another. We're putting on that helmet of faith to protect our brain and how we think. We're speaking truth to one another. And this is what we're supposed to be doing. Let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another, and especially as you see the day approaching. So let's wrap it up. The clock back there stopped this week, so I have no idea. Are we long? (laughs) We could be here till noon, church. I hope not. It's only 10.07 by my... I hope that's not a doomsday clock. (laughs) Well, again, I hope it didn't seem too academic. But I think there's a lot of confusion about the end times. And there's so much there that... I mean, I had to just kind of reset and study it again to get everything sorted out to work through those different puzzle pieces. But the truth is... The world is going to end. Not because the bulletin of atomic scientists says so, 
But because God says so, he is the one that's going to bring it to an end. Isn't that encouraging? Maybe, (laughs) depending on where we stand before the Lord today. Another important point, the day of the Lord refers to events surrounding his return. Whole series of events, and no one knows the day or the hour of the Lord's return, but we are to recognize the signs of the times. Some people say we're living in the times of the signs, because they're everywhere. The day of the Lord involves elements of surprise and supposed safety, along with a whole series of cataclysmic events leading up to the Lord's return. And so developing a complete picture of this can be a little bit confusing, especially since we don't have all of the pieces, but that's no excuse for not doing our homework and endeavoring to understand it and apply it. We don't know when exactly the Lord will return. The important thing is not when he'll return. The important thing is that he'll return. And the important thing is what will we be doing when he returns? That's what's most important. And we don't want to lose sight of that. God hadn't told us everything about the end times, but he's told us everything we need to know. It's right here. The day of the Lord is not a single day, but a period of time. I believe it begins with the resurrection of the dead and the rapture of the church and continues through the final judgment. God tells us about future events so that we can take action now. So as you hear the word of God, my hope, I pray every week, I pray, God, unless your spirit moves, nothing good is going to come out of this. I have no power to change anybody's heart or mind at all. In fact, I feel like, you know, at the feeding of the 5,000, I got a couple crumbs and a few bones, a couple fish. And Jesus says, go feed the people. You give them something to eat. Well, that's got to come from God and his spirit. And I pray that he's active as you're hearing the word of God. What is the spirit saying to you as we study this passage? What do you need to change right now in light of his return? I'm thinking about this a lot. There's things I want to change in my own life. What are we going to change? And finally, we're not to be sleeping, but alert, engaged, and and self-controlled. Jesus is coming back for his church. It's imminent. It could happen at any time. Do you believe that? Are you living like that's true? That's the second question. Are we watching? Are we engaged doing the Lord's work? Are we prepared? If we're not, we need to encourage one another to do so. And if we are, we need to encourage one another to keep going and not grow weary of doing good. So, this is what God says in his letter to us, the church. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you did not send your son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God, I would be one of those condemned. And when I think about the end times and the sudden judgment that's going to come upon this unbelieving world... It's frightening. But we as believers have nothing to fear if our faith and hope is in you. Because our real citizenship isn't in America, it's in heaven. 
And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. Come for your church. We look forward to this return. And we thank you that you will deliver us from the coming wrath. But God, help us in the meantime to live our life for you. A living sacrifice. Living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. Alert, engaged, prepared for your return. And so it's in the name of our Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen.